You are listening to a sermon by Dr. Richard Caldwell, produced by Walking in Grace. Walking in Grace is a listener-supported ministry. If you'd like to know how you can help these messages reach more people, visit walkingingrace.org media. Matthew chapter 25 is where we are this morning in our study of the Word of God. Matthew chapter 25. We read this morning beginning with verse 31 and we'll read to verse 46. Matthew 25 beginning with verse 31. Our Lord spoke these words, But when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. And all the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them from one another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom which has been prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they themselves also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Let's go to our God together in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the joy that it is to be yours, for the joy that it is to be one of your people. Of all the things that we're aware of in our hearts as we sing songs of praise and hear the Scriptures read and pray together and meet with one another. Lord, of all the things that we know in our hearts, joy, joy is present. We thank You for the privilege it is, Lord, to encounter Your Word together on these Lord's Days, to open the book and to hear it read and then taught. We thank You for the way that it feeds our souls. We thank You for the way that it keeps us safe. We thank You for the way that it fuels our perseverance and preserves us and keeps us. Lord, it's You doing the work, but You do that through the ministry of Your Word, and we give You praise and thanks. Today we need the passage that we've just read. We need to be taught from it. And so we ask You to meet with Your church and to take care of Your sheep 
We're also mindful that some will hear my voice today who don't know you. And we ask that today would be a day of salvation, that today would be the day when eyes are opened and hearts are opened and men, women, young people come to faith in your Son. Thank you for the way you love us, Lord. You love us perfectly. You love us constantly. You love us eternally. We give you thanks for these things, and we ask your blessing now in Jesus' name. Amen. We come now to the end of this long answer that Jesus gave in response to the questions of his disciples. Matthew chapter 24, verse 3, Now as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things happen, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? What follows is what is known as the Olivet Discourse. And now today, as we come to the end of chapter 25, we come to the end of the Olivet Discourse. And where our Lord finishes in His answer is with the description and the declaration of a day of a great separation. When our Lord returns to this earth and ushers in His kingdom on this earth, all those alive at the time of His coming will be judged. All humanity, all nations brought before the Son of God. Some will be welcomed into everlasting life. Some will be banished into everlasting judgment. That day of separation will manifest the just judgment of God, that day of separation will manifest the great grace of God. And our Lord spoke these words, and the Spirit of God has preserved these words in Scripture so that the world will know that the day is coming. Our Lord wanted the world to know that this day of great separation is coming, and especially He wants His people to know. He wants us to know that this day of judgment is on its way. This is not rare on the part of Jesus. Jesus spoke often on the subject of judgment. It's a constant theme. John MacArthur said, no one in Scripture spoke more of judgment than Jesus. He spoke of sin that could not be forgiven, of the danger of losing one's soul forever of spending eternity in the torments of hell, of existing forever in outer darkness, where there will be perpetual weeping and gnashing of teeth. No pictures of judgment are more intense and sobering than those Jesus portrayed. Close quote. He is right, and that brings me this morning to the question that I want us to consider I'm going to do something, I don't know that I've ever done it before, but I'm going to do something unusual for me for certain. That is, I want to take an entire sermon and devote it to what is really an introduction. But I think it's right. And so what I want to do this morning is introduce this description that Jesus gives of the final judgment. Tonight, we'll come back and walk through this, these, this section, these verses, verse by verse. But this morning, I just want us to consider a question. And the question is this, if Jesus spoke often about judgment, and if the Bible speaks often about judgment, then why doesn't His church speak often about judgment? Why is the professing church so often so silent about the judgment that is on its way. I don't know what they call it anymore. Uh, there's a word that really describes it no matter what version of it you run into. The word would be pragmatism. But there was a time, a couple of decades ago perhaps, maybe even a decade ago, where you heard a lot about the church growth movement. And so you have the mega church movement. And one aspect of the church growth movement was to diminish, to minimize, 
to sort of distance oneself from the aspects of the Christian message that the teachers deemed unpleasant for seekers. If you want to reach people with the gospel, what you must do, the theory went, is minimize those aspects of the message that, that the seekers find disagreeable or could misunderstand, and then maximize what we believe they will find <clears throat> pleasant in our message, attractive in our message. The, the, the theory is attractional evangelism. That raises a question, doesn't it? If Jesus spoke often about judgment, and if the Bible speaks often about judgment, how can we possibly think we are doing His will to avoid the subject of judgment? You see this sometimes even in the context of otherwise faithful churches. You see this sometimes in the context of worship services. You'll hear preachers who, for the most part, really do strive to preach the Bible, but there they are in a section that, that is devoted to the subject of the judgment of God, and as they declare that section, they begin to utter statements that sort of take the edge off of those statements about judgment. It's as if we can't preach that section. We've got to immediately dive in with assurances, God is loving and God is merciful, and just take the edge right off the sword, ashamed of God's warnings about His judgment. The same can happen in the realm of worship music, songs that never talk about the judgment of God, but only talk about the acceptance of God and the love of God and the grace of God. And I understand the context for us is we're the church, we're the forgiven ones, glorying even as we have this morning with great joy in the acceptance we have in Christ, and those are themes we must maximize. But these are words spoken to the disciples of Jesus. He doesn't just want the world to know that His judgment is coming. He wants His people to know that His judgment is coming because we have the responsibility to declare that message to the world. If we're not convinced of the truthfulness of these words, we will not declare these words to people who are not yet forgiven, who will one day face the judgment of God without being clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. So this morning what I want to think about is why so many professing Christians are hesitant to declare God's warnings about His judgment. Why are so many professing Christians ashamed of God's message about a day like this one, a day of great separation, a day of great judgment? Now, I want to give you five things to consider. Five things to consider when we think about why I would, I would entitle the message, Whatever Happened to the Judgment of God? What happened to the judgment of God? I'm going to give you five things to consider, and this is an introduction into what we'll look at tonight. First of all, sometimes people are ashamed of the judgment of God because they are strangers to God. Ashamed of the judgment of God because they don't know God. Regeneration produces a new creation. Everyone in this room who, who really knows Jesus, you are not the man or woman you once were. The Lord has saved you, transformed you, made you a new creation in Christ Jesus. And wherever you have new creation, you have a new worldview. A new view of God, a new view of yourself, a new view of humanity, a new view of history and the course of history and the end of the age, all taught to you by the God who has saved you in His Word. New creation produces a new worldview. 
If someone is unregenerate, if someone is not saved, they want to create a God in their own image. They may call their God the God of the Bible. They may call their God Jesus. But if they are strangers to that God, if they don't really know God, you can be sure of this, they will not present Him, present His character in a way that accords with the truth. They will distort it. Really what they're trying to do is eliminate it. Eliminate everything about God that doesn't accord with their appetites. And this happens on both ends of the spectrum. That as you take the character of God, this is what Satan does. This is what demonic doctrine does. This is what lost humanity does. You take the truth that God has revealed about Himself and you distort it to agree with your appetites. And Satan doesn't care on which end of the spectrum it gets distorted as long as it is distorted. So there are people who present the judgment of God as though God has no mercy, delighting in God's wrath as if there is no grace. And on the other end of the spectrum, there are people who present God as if He is like a permissive parent who would never judge anybody. Anyone who has been saved understands that there's no such thing as God ignoring sin. If you know Jesus today, I know that you know this. God did not ignore your sin. All sin is judged. All sinners are judged. The sins of all Christians had to be judged. But praise be to our God, our sins were judged in the body of His Son on the tree. Our sins were not ignored. Our sins had to be paid for. Christ had to be our substitute. Christ, Jesus, had to die in our place to deliver us from the wrath of God. God loved us by giving us His Son who would take our place and serve as our substitute and His blood would atone for our sins. Our sins were not ignored. Our sins were paid for. So that God is both just and the justifier of the ungodly. The ungodly, that's us. God justly declared us right with Himself by He Himself giving the payment for our sins and then giving us as a gift the righteousness that we need to stand before Him. That's justification. And it is by faith that it's received so that it's by the grace of God from beginning to end. We didn't work for it. We don't deserve it. We'll never deserve it. God did this by Himself, ultimately for Himself, and because He loved us when we didn't deserve His love. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly. I mean, God guarding His name. God making clear that He is not a God who ignores sin. Putting on, in, in, into the public realm the justness of the justification He would give as a gift God publicly displayed His Son as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously committed. I mean, how do you, how do you forgive all those Old Testament saints? On the basis of animal sacrifices? Will the blood of bulls and goats pay for sins? So that when the Messiah comes and walks to the cross and lays down His life as that substitute, God is vindicated for all those people He saved in times past. They weren't saved by the blood of bulls and goats. They were saved by the blood of the one who has just given His life. And the justness of God to save all of us ungodly people is on display at the cross as Jesus dies in our stead. 
His righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You see, saved people know this so that we affirm both truths, the justice of God and the grace of God. Justification by faith alone, so that no one has ever accepted God's grace without a knowledge of his sins. No one has ever experienced the grace of God who hasn't known that I'm a sinner who would otherwise have met with the wrath of God. God saved me from my sin. God saved me from his just judgment. God saved me from his wrath by giving His Son for me and to me. This is the gospel. This is what has to be preached to a lost and dying world. You are under sin. You deserve the wrath of God. The wrath is on its way, but God has made the way for you to be delivered from His wrath and to be saved forever as a gift in His Son. You can't preach the good news if you don't preach the bad news. If you don't declare the judgment of God, you can't declare the forgiveness of God. So why are there people who say they know Jesus who won't talk about that judgment? Answer, they don't really know Jesus in some cases. They've never really known the grace of God. They have a, a view of God's grace that doesn't even mention sin, much less answer for it. doesn't even acknowledge sin, much less present the explanation for the forgiveness of it. Some people are ashamed of the judgment of God because they don't know God. And I say it with fear and trembling, but I believe there, that many of these so-called mega-pastors through the years are men that eternity will demonstrate never knew the God they spoke about from their pulpits. They were business owners trying to grow a brand in the name of religion and Jesus but ashamed of the very message that Jesus declared over and over again. Judgment is on its way. Second, sometimes the people ashamed of the judgment of God are engaging in a sinful response to mischaracterization. Sometimes the people ashamed of the judgment of God, the people hesitant to talk about the judgment of God are people who are engaging in a sinful response to mischaracterization. Now I'm talking about people who do know the Lord, but find themselves sort of ashamed to talk about the judgment of God. Why? Because they have met with someone or those they're talking to, they have met with someone who has mischaracterized the character of God. If you haven't already, sooner or later you're going to run into someone from a pulpit in a church or out on the street who preaches from the Bible in the name of God, talks about Jesus, but they present a God who would rather judge than save who delights in wrath in a way that distorts the message of Scripture. A focus on the judgment of God that is so consistent, and yet there is no clear explanation of the grace of God. It really is. You know, the world's narrative constantly is about Christians being full of hate, but, but what I'm describing is someone who really is full of hate. But in the name of Jesus... So that for some Christians, what develops is sort of a cringe factor and a fear factor. I don't want to be perceived like that, they say. So what I want to do is, is when, we, when we come to the subject of judgment, I want to present it in a way that makes clear that I'm not like that. But the result sometimes is I'm actually not being faithful 
to God's warnings about His judgment. I, I, am, I am responding to the mischaracterization of God in a way that I don't have the authority to do. That I'm not right to do this. I'm actually sinning. It is a sinful response to my fears about perception that are associated with a mischaracterization of God, no doubt about it. That over there is not faithful preaching, but now I've taken a step in a direction that I don't have the right to do. Blunting the edge of the sword when it comes to the message of the judgment of God. This is a great error. Listen, someone else's error should never distort our preaching of Scripture. How do you preach the Bible faithfully? You preach it submissively. The most faithful way you will ever represent your God and represent what it means to be a Christian is to simply, faithfully, consistently say what He has said. And if you say it rightly, which means embracing not just the words but the message, Right? You, can, you can say the words and miss the message. That's the street preacher out there who's saying biblical words, but he is a stranger to the message he's preaching. You can say words without grasping the message. So you've got to grasp the message. But if you have the truth in your heart and you're declaring the truth of God, you will never do better than to simply, faithfully, submissively say what he says. And if you do that consistently, that is to say, if you preach the whole counsel of God, then you will also get it right proportionally. You will speak about judgment when you should speak about judgment, and you'll speak about grace when you should speak about grace, and you'll speak about discipline when you should speak about discipline. You'll speak about love when you should speak about love. Just say what the Bible says. So when someone else is in error, and I take it upon myself to distance myself from the error, but in a way that now makes me hesitant to say what God has actually said, you see, now I'm committing sin, just like they are, just in a different way. I want to remind us, and listen, I'm talking to people who represent God when you go to the family get-togethers. I'm talking about people who represent God when it's time now for the office to get together for a party, and there you are interacting in a very casual way with all the people you work with every day. I'm talking about people who go to school, and now you're representing your Lord as a student wherever you're in school. You see, we're all preaching, aren't we? We're all representing our God and His Word. Do you find yourself ashamed of what he says about the judgment that is coming because of how you're going to be perceived. I want to remind us that we don't preach to please men. We preach to please God. Galatians 1.10, for am I now seeking the approval of man or God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Afraid to say what the Scriptures say, about the judgment of God because you're afraid of how it will make you look. If that's you, then you desire man's approval. Man's approval, the desire for man's approval is holding sway over you instead of the desire to be faithful with your stewardship. When's the last time you told anyone outside a Bible study class or a church worship service that the wrath of God is on its way? When is the last time you gave someone the truth that then requires the gospel, requires the good news, the way of deliverance, the way of salvation, the way of forgiveness? When you tell people nothing but about forgiveness and they don't even really know they're sinners, why do they need what you are talking about? So why don't we say it? We don't say it sometimes because we're afraid of how we're going to be perceived. Third, sometimes the people ashamed of the judgment of God 
are afraid of persecution. Again, I'm now, for the rest of the sermon now, I'm talking to save people. My first point, some people don't talk about God's judgment because they don't know God. But I'm talking now about why we might struggle with cowardice, why we might struggle for a season with unfaithfulness. And sometimes it's a sinful response to error, but it's still error. But sometimes this happens because we're afraid of suffering. We know that if we talk about sin and we talk about judgment and we talk about wrath, we know how people perceive that. And we know it brings trouble for us. And so we're willing to avoid what they need to be rescued eternally. We avoid it to rescue ourselves temporally. I want to protect myself from the discomfort of what I would experience if I told them clearly what God says about sin and judgment. We know this, don't we? Unregenerate people hate the truth of God about their sins. It's not a mild reaction. Tell them the truth about sin and judgment and you will meet in many cases with a fervent reaction. They hate God's assessment of them. Are you telling me I'm a sinner? I think I've told you the story before. Martin Lloyd-Jones tells the story of when he first began to preach at Westminster and how one day someone came to him and said, you talk to us like we're sinners. They hate God's assessment of them. They hate God's assessment of their righteousnesses. People want to believe that they are good people doing good things, that somehow this will bring them merit in the sight of God. They hate God's assessment of their destiny. Hitler in hell, we understand that. Charles Manson in hell, we understand that. My granny, who never received Jesus as Lord and Savior, who didn't darken the door of the church, you're telling me she has met with the judgment of God? Hating God's assessment of their need. You mean I need something I can't do for myself? I need to be rescued. I need to be delivered. I need to be forgiven. Hate it. Hate that message. And they hate a message that says that it's by grace alone, it's by faith alone, it's in Christ alone. Not saved by the church, not saved by rights done in obedience to the church, not saved by tradition, not saved by your righteous deeds, saved by Jesus. If you're to be saved, Christ must save you. Hate that message. Let me give you one biblical example of this. If you would just real quickly look to Acts chapter 7. Let me remind you of what I know you know well, but it's a great illustration of the choices that we all have to make. Acts chapter 7, look at verse 51. Stephen, preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. How does he do it? He does it by declaring the truth about their sins. Acts 7, verse 51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. And by the way, Stephen, he's really saying, look at us. Look at our people. Look at our people. This is our history. Can't you see that we are sinners in need of a Savior? Even the declaration that he was coming brought people such persecution that they were murdered. Now he came and you murdered him. Verse 53, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, I want you to note this, full of the Holy Spirit, 
gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul, the greatest evangelist the church has ever known, was present in his unregenerate state at the stoning of a faithful messenger of God. That's the grace of God, isn't it? That He would save Saul of Tarsus, that we would know him as the Apostle Paul, that God would use him as a great instrument to declare his son when once he affirmed the murder of a faithful messenger of Christ. Verse 59, And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice. See, here's the heart of it, isn't it? He's declared the judgment of God. But in what spirit has he declared that judgment? Listen, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. What is Stephen aiming at? Salvation. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Was Stephen mistaken? Was he giving a bad look? Was he doing some bad PR work for God? When he emphasized their sins in the way that he did, was he unnecessarily confrontive, combative? Or was he walking by the Spirit? Was he full of the Holy Spirit? Was it the very message those people needed to hear because it was the message by which they could be saved? You know the answer. He was doing exactly what the Lord wanted him to do. They just hated what he was called to do. And we know this, that if we are faithful to what God has called us to do, we are not just going to meet with applause and approval and praises. We're going to meet with anger sometimes and malignment and mistreatment. Sometimes we're ashamed of the judgment of God to declare what He says about sin and judgment and salvation because we know it means persecution. Fourth, sometimes the people ashamed of the judgment of God, Christian people, ashamed of the judgment of God, are ashamed because they're not mindful of the connection between love and warning. They're not mindful of the connection between love and warning. When God declares His judgments, is God unloving? When we then declare the judgments God has declared, are we being unloving? This is the world's narrative. You know this. You speak hateful words. You've heard this. Is that true? When we, again, in proportion, verse by verse, we've, we've preached the grace of God and the love of God, the kindness of God, but now we come to the judgment of God and we say without, without blunting the edge of the sword, we say what God has said. Is that unloving? Consider the ministry of Jonah. Jonah was used by God to see the, the mass awakening of an entire city, Nineveh. What was Jonah's message? He simply announced a deadline for disaster. Jonah chapter 3, verse 4, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That was his message. 40 days, I'm sure there was more, but this is what the Spirit of God wants us to get there. 40 days and this city is going to be destroyed. What happened? The people, by the grace of God, heard it. Not just with their ears, but with their hearts. And as a result, they cast themselves on the mercy of God. There was a repentant heart produced by God Himself through the message of His impending judgment. Jonah 3, verse 6, the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. 
And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. The message of judgment resulted in a heart of penitence and humility. Well, how did Jonah respond to the wonderful result of his preaching? He moped around, didn't he? He becomes sullen. He's angry. Why? Why did Jonah run in the first place? Why did he run? You know, some have said, well, he was afraid of the fierce Assyrians that had a great reputation for cruelty and battle and all the rest. So he ran because he was afraid. Why don't we let him tell us why he ran? It had nothing to do with fear. Jonah chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to Yahweh, and he said, Oh, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. These people who are so wicked and who've caused my people so much heartache, I wanted them judged. And I knew that if I went and preached your message of judgment, you're a God who would relent from destroying them if they repented. See, Jonah understood the very thing that many hesitant Christians don't understand, that God sends His message of judgment with a willingness to save, and that God uses His message of judgment to deliver those who would otherwise be judged. God's announcement of His wrath is not disconnected from His love. And as soon as you can see that, then here's what you'll recognize. It is when we refuse to announce the coming disaster that we are engaging in the most unloving behavior that we ever could. How can you see someone about to be destroyed and not tell them? The church growth movement is not about love. It's about hatred. It's about a kind of love. It's about loving yourself. It's about creating a God who never exposes you to the anger of unregenerate people. But what that represents is loving yourself more than you love them. Because if you love them with the love of God, you have to tell them about why they need to be saved. Some people are ashamed of the judgment of God because they don't understand the love of God and how His warnings come with a willingness to save the people who are being warned. Some ashamed because they're lost. Some ashamed because of a sinful response to error, committing error themselves. Some are ashamed because they're afraid of being persecuted. Some of that happens in your own families. I'm not going to call sin, sin. I'm not going to take my stand with the Word of God. I'm not going to do what's right because I don't want to feel the disapproval. Some ashamed because they've misunderstood the love of God. It's the only way that those people whom you love will ever be delivered is if they know that what they're doing is going to destroy them. Fifth, finally, sometimes people are ashamed of the judgment of God because they become drowsy to the return of Christ. Ashamed of the judgment of God because I've become drowsy to the return of Jesus. See, this gets to everything that our Lord has declared up to this final section. Again and again, as He's talked about His second coming, what has He said? Be awake. Be prepared. Be investing. Work while you watch. Watch while you work. Don't be passive. Be investing on behalf of eternity. Why? 
Why? Because even though the master has been long delayed, he is coming. And what happens when he comes? When he comes, there is salvation. There is the deliverance of the people being persecuted by a lost and dying world. The sheep enter into the kingdom. But it's also a time of grief and damnation. It's a time of great separation. This one example of what has been true throughout the ages and will forever be that there are only two families of humanity on the face of the planet, the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the Son of God. This great separation is going to be demonstrated when Jesus returns to the earth. And the point is, if you really believe these things, what should you be saying to your world? If you're Noah and the flood is coming, what do you say? Get ready. Be prepared. Don't waste your life. You need to be delivered from the wrath of God that is on its way. Our scripture reading this morning demonstrates that. Look at Luke chapter 3 real quickly. I'm not going to read the entire passage again that Butch read this morning. But I do want to read a portion of it. Beginning at verse 10, Luke chapter 3, verse 10. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? He has declared the foolishness of putting your faith in your descent from Abraham. Don't say to yourselves, we're sons of Abraham. God has the power to raise up sons of Abraham from these stones. Don't put your confidence there. Verse 8, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. The axe is laid, verse 9, at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And so they say in verse 10, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you're authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And, and we, sh what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. And when they began to wonder in their hearts whether this was the Christ, is this the Messiah? He makes clear that he's not worthy to unstrap the sandals of the Messiah. And he describes Jesus with this promise, He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. The Holy Spirit, salvation, fire, judgment. He is the one who saves. He is the one who will judge. In fact, verse 17, His winnowing fork is in His hand to clear His threshing floor. This is the great separation. This is the great judgment He's describing to gather the wheat into His barn, but the chaff He will burn with unquenchable fire. What is John doing? He is declaring both the judgment of God and the grace of God. And so how is it described in verse 18? So with many other exhortations, He preached what? Good news to the people. This is good news preaching. Yes, God is loving and merciful and gracious, but He is just. And everyone's sins will be paid for. Either you will pay for your sins on your own in hell forever, or you will look to the one who paid for the sins of all those who will trust in Him at a cross. And His name is Jesus. Judgment is coming, wrath is coming, but God has made the way for you to be saved. That's good news. And you can't preach the good news if you won't announce the need for it. Why? Are some people ashamed of the judgment of God? They must not really believe Jesus is coming. Because when Jesus talks about His own second coming, where does He end His message? with a description of the judgment that is on its way. I'll close with this from James Montgomery Boyce. He said, we sometimes hear people say that they cannot believe in an Old Testament God 
who is full of wrath and judgment and that they prefer the God of the gentle Jesus. But they forget that it's Jesus more than any other person in the Bible who speaks most clearly about hell. Matthew 25 is an example. In the parable of the talents, the master cries, throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In the separation of the sheep from the goats, the king tells the goats, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. The chapter ends with Jesus' frightening summation. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. We may not like these statements, but they were spoken by Jesus, the very Son of God, and I think He knew what He was talking about. We would do well to take His warnings seriously. Close quote. We would do well to take His warnings seriously. Amen? So judgment is coming. Jesus is the Savior. God is willing to save you. Do you desire to be saved? Just as John declared as he was preaching the good news, what does it mean? What shall we do? It means you turn from your life of sin, from this life where you have made yourself and the things of this world your God, a life where you have imagined that somehow you can be in heaven one day based upon your own goodness when the Bible says you don't have any. You've got to turn from every way that would eliminate the need for the cross of Christ Turn from that in your mind and heart and understand that God gave His Son because only His Son can save you. And then give your heart and life to the Son of God. Lose your life to have Him. And that day, when with penitent faith you cry out to Jesus, that will be the first day of your new life. And when Jesus returns, you will belong to that kingdom that He ushers in. And you'll be a child of God this very moment. And a member of His spiritual kingdom this very moment. The church would say, Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank You for the whole message. Everything You've given us in Your Word. Strengthen us to be men and women who declare every word that You've given us because every word is pure. Forgive us, Lord, forgive us. Save people when we have ever been ashamed to be identified with the word that You've spoken. Strengthen us as Paul declared and prayed to preach the truth the way it deserves to be preached, that is, boldly not in a fleshly boldness that makes us feel strong and exalts us, but a Holy Spirit-produced boldness that places the emphasis on Jesus and with the humility of one who has been delivered himself and with love in our hearts toward all those who are existing in a state we once knew, let us with gentleness but clearness, clarity, Lord, declare the message you've given us to declare. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.